Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. And with us again today to discuss her new book is Mary Jane Dorr, author of Smiles, the songs of J. Will Callahan, Tin Pan Alley's blind lyricist. Hello, Mary. Oh, well, it's good to be here. I'm so glad to be asked back. Who are some of the more famous people that recorded his songs? One of the famous one was John McCormick, and he was Irish tenor. Very, very popular and very famous, too. He, he liked the idiom of songs. He, he didn't like the stage, the opera stage, so he liked to record. Al Jolson, and people all remembered Al Jolson. His voice was very popular, but he was very stylized. Then we have Lawrence Welk, of course, Doris Day, Gordon McRae, Burl Ives, was always a favorite of, of mine. Mitch Miller, Dan Getz, our Oscar Peterson, Benny Goodman. I mean, it just goes on and on. Well, Stan Getz is one of my favorites. Yes, <laughs> yes. So it was very much of a, a well-known and amazing. And there's other songs of his that are published. The interesting ones from a social standpoint, I don't know if you want to get into it, but he wrote... Uh, songs with black composers, and there, there was a lady known as the Black Patty. She was a very accomplished opera singer, and she had been awarded many, many awards in Europe. And she had a show, a touring show, that she took all over the United States. And she is known probably as one of the first great American opera singers. And two of her writers were that wrote with Callahan, and they obviously were gifted because you don't, obviously you don't work with a woman of her magnitude if, unless she really had talent. But um, the covers of those pieces, I, I didn't find any of the pieces, the lyrics particularly offensive, but in today's day and age, we have to be more sensitive and careful. But the, obviously, the covers are pretty provocative. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, yes. And one of the things that's interesting is he, he had a song, Aunt Jemima's Pan- Picnic Day. And, of course, Aunt Jemima, the pancake mix, changed the name this yes, last year. We're in a whole different... Yes, a whole different friend. man. And then in the he wrote a song, Mammy's Lullaby, and that was called A Dreamy... Southern Waltz, but it was a, it was a parody on a black um, mother who was singing her baby to sleep. So it was not particularly offensive, but the cover, the cover. <laughs> covers are. And the one I think is particularly beautiful is Louisiana Blossom, and the artist, um, Helen Van Dorn, she was a gifted artist, and it is a beautiful cover even though it's um, slightly uh, jaded because of her piccadilly hairdo and the white doll. Mm-hmm. So, and the melon, in a watermelon patch. Watermelons became very, very um, associated much with blacks. And then I put a picture of, in Bayview at the same time of a big watermelon p- party in well, Bayview. They- and they just had a, a um, you know, Juneteenth just passed, and some company put out a watermelon salad. How how inappropriate! Can you imagine yes. in this day and age? Yes, right. Um, 
the watermelon, the man who held the party, would um, ship hundreds of watermelons to Podolsky. But this is summer food. Yeah, yeah, right. So, no, um, but the black patty, um, I've heard uh, lectures from Opera America about her. She was very, very good. We know that Bayview has always been accepting of the African-American culture way beyond and way before, you know, most before, communities. Yeah. The um, Fist Jubilee Singers, well, first of all, um, uh, Chief Blackbird appeared on the Bayview Assembly in 1887. And then in 1891 and 2, the Fist Jubilee Singers uh, appeared, and with their soprano, whose diary is very much quoted in different documentaries, Maggie Porter and 2,000 people filled the auditorium to see her. It that's only sets amazing. about 1,300, so that's pretty... <laughs> yes, 2,000. And then after that, we had Booker T. He I was going to say Booker T., He's, yeah, he stayed in Petoskey, and he's registered uh, in the newspaper. And where did he stay? Occidental. The Occidental? Mm-hmm. And then we had about eight different um, Jubilee singer groups. And in 1914, the auditorium wasn't, was supposed to be open that summer, but the Williams Jubilee singers were contracted to do this great big opening. And the art trim was done because of delays in, in construction. 1915, we had the Fistuli Singers back for the fourth time. And, and then um, in 31 and 32, we had one of the great American black poets, uh, County Cullen. And the, other, the other one that is so famous, Gershwin had a choice for Bess, and it was the Etta Moten. And she'd also been one of the first blacks to sing at the White House. And she gave a concert in Bayview in 1941 for 400 people. I have a portion of the Occidental stage in my store. And to think the Booker was, was on that stage potentially. Now I, have to, I can't wait to get back to the shop. Oh, yes. And then the next time he came, he came in 13 too, and he stayed at John M. Hall's cottage. One thing going back to, um, to, to Callahan, we were shown through the cottage, there was a secret little cabinet, a little hidden liquor cabinet that I have heard uh, uh, was kind of popular back in the day. It was Bayview, of course. Oh, of course. And one yeah. didn't just openly display uh, alcohol, but uh, we were shown that little cabinet in the back of his uh, of, of his cottage there. Okay. And that was a hall cottage? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's funny. Or the Smiles Cottage. The, the Smiles Cottage. Yes, Smiles Cottage. Hall was a pretty pretty strict um, Methodist. And, oh, yeah, and at the time the architect was building the Jotham Hall Auditorium, he was also building the latest version of the Second Baptist Church in Greektown. It was a black congregation, one of the oldest in the country, and they had had a fire, and and they asked the same architect. So, yeah, there's a very close. So it's not a, not unbelievable that Callahan would have no qualms about working with anybody that they asked him to work for. And it sounds like he ran the gamut from musicians. Oh, yeah, he ran the gamut. And the uh, one of the things I found very interesting, mother songs were extraordinarily popular. They're kind of modeling by our take today. But um, during World War One. 
Wilson wanted to bring the women on board so they would support the war and their sons would go off to World War One. And um, mother songs were always sell, would always sell. And it kind of came out of that. Mother's Day was created out of that whole movement. Well, uh, this book is aesthetically just as beautiful as your as your previous book. Um, you worked with Cindy Shaw as the layouts. Oh, yes, Cindy Shaw's from Petoskey. She's done this for she's done numerous projects and uh, always of really top quality. And uh, this one is just simply wonderful. Her cover is so captivating, and she also is is good to work with because she has a sense of the whole business and gives good advice. And I uh, really was very lucky to have been have found her. Where did you Where did you guys get all of those great vintage images? I mean, oh. th- that's what impressed me. Well, I the one on the cover is that salmon one from Australia. When I first started doing my book on Bayview, I would go to the antique stores, and I found a lot of music there. Then, as eBay began to open up and Amazon began to open up. Then uh, I started getting the music online. But depending on who was bidding against me, uh, sometimes I just had to pay the long price because I needed the piece. But I have about 200 of them. And I think most of them are featured in this book. But the thing is, I like is that it shows the evolution of the development of graphic artists. Mm-hmm. We have intricate, beautifully done pieces and then as they became more and more expensive then they lessened their uh, the amount of uh, color and detail well everything uh, uh, smiles was the first piece to have been marketed with a, a very simple piece and then they marketed it in new york and when they realized it was going to take off is when they came up with the cover and nowadays everything's computer digital mm-hmm. Back then, I mean, we're talking, a lot of time went into these graphic designs. Oh, yeah. And if uh, one of the artists, my favorite, and who obviously was Lee Roberts' favorite, was Van Buren, Rayburn Van Buren. And he was a very famous cartoonist, and he wrote for major publications. And Lee Roberts uh, hired him in 1919, and he did about eight or ten of them for Roberts, and they're beautiful, just beautiful. And then there's other ones that uh, were very famous ones, the different houses. Rosenbaum, he was one of the great artists, and he had a whole wealth of people working for him. So when you see his uh, insignia on the bottom, there's always a different variation of it, depending on which one of his group did it. And there's uh, there's one in Hawaii that's absolutely gorgeous and just absolutely beautiful, beautiful pictures. Even when they simplified them to just black and white pen, they were intricately done. <laughs> well, I'm colorblind, and I've always been a more um, drawn to black and white photos anyway, so... Uh, well, I, the, in there I have the black and white photos of the cottage, Yes, As it knew it when he had it, he had it until 46 when he died in um, New Smyrna Beach, Florida, and his wife died a month later. They had 
been together so long, I think they couldn't live without each other. Knowing what a Hemingway yes. fan, and I'm, I'm actually a, you know, a groupie in a sense, uh, tell us, th- there's a connection between Callahan and Hemingway. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. In 1919, Smiles was recorded by the Army Ambulance Corps in Milan, Italy, when I think, the, you know this, the uh, Hemingway was recovering. Yeah, Hemingway was an ambulance driver, technically, and, and had recuperated uh, mm-hmm. in, in Milan. And that's where it was recorded. Also, in 1919, Hemingway was here when Callahan got that big amount of money. Imagine what he was thinking. Oh, yes. <laughs> and when you realize that it was the largest amount ever paid for a song, well, that national news... And also, uh, Raycraft was t- treating uh, Callahan, so that was next door. And Callahan's cottage was two blocks over, so they all were friends. Um, and Raycraft's son was no, in... No, Ramsdale. I'm sorry, yes, Ramsdale's son was in. It was, was one of Hemingway's, Hemingway's best was, men. Yep. And they also had, that was where the famous party was. The famous party. At, yeah. Which we've Ramsdale's. recreated twice. Yes, and uh, so that was right next door. Now, there was a fire in 1918, and Ramsdale and Raycraft rebuilt their houses. But there were two more affected, and one they never rebuilt. Was there a hotel that burned during that fire, too? No, not the same fire. In 1929, there was a fire in this huge hotel, and it was one of the largest in the area. And there was always rumors that it was arsoned. And they didn't have enough insurance on it. It burned a month before the stock market crash, so it was never rebuilt. Uh, It's too bad because that hotel housed all the famous early guests of the assembly. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting part is that when people, we talk about all the black groups that were here, where, where did they stay? Well, in the newspaper in the 1890s, it lists them by name. And where they stayed, and they were at the Bayview House. And um, so they stayed four times, so they must have had a nice time. And um, the uh, Booker T is listed by name. And, uh, and then Hall had them at his house. I had a wonderful experience a couple of years ago. Ken Morris is the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass and the great-great-grandson of Booker T. Washington. And when he was in Bayview to speak, I went over and asked him, I said, would you like to see where your great-great-grandfather Booker stayed? He said, yes. And the man who owns that cottage said, ah, come on over, the place is a mess, but you'll like it. And they sat and, uh, and talked and talked. And, and, and Ken Morris looked at the table and he said, now, is that where my great-great-grandfather ate? And, and, the, and the owner said, well, he must have, because the only one in the, ta- in the house, and that's the only one that's ever been here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, and I know that he stayed there back to Hemingway because Sterling told me. Mm-hmm. Sterling, and Sterling is uh, Ernest uh, Hemingway's, uh, well, nephew. Mar- yes. Well, yeah, um, no, it's his brother-in-law. I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah, and he uh, was there at the time. So he knew... He knew um, Booker T. Helen Keller stayed there. It was a, a quiet place. But um, the Hemingway, um, I wanted to talk about H.R. Uh, Stoneback. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Um, one last thing before we get to Stoney. Um, uh, Glenn Stevens, owner of the Ramsdale mm-hmm. Cottage, has that wonderful piano. 
It's so appropriate. Yeah, it's so appropriate. And to me, uh, there is something so beautiful about a slightly out of tune piano. I, I just every time we're over there and listen to that music, it just it just it gives me chills. Yeah, it's a tinny sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that was what was so distinctive. People liked it. Um, the piano became very popular after after the Civil War, and they said the a number of pianos in American household tripled between 1900 and um, in the 20s. And then people found out that it was difficult to play the piano and play it well. So that was the uptake of the player piano because then you had some great artists like Max Cortlander or Max Cortlander and um, Lee Roberts had an assistant, J. Lawrence Cook, who was a black man that was incredibly talented and he was with them for like 40 years. He could imitate any pianist. And so we think that some of the uh, piano roles were created by him. So that was another aspect of it. But um, he was able to imitate anybody's sound. And then he was brilliant. During World War II, there was such a demand for piano roles, they had to make 5000 a week. They had the three machines going 24-7, and the thing about Cook was that he didn't need a piano to punch the holes. He could do it by himself without, which is extraordinary. See, when the piano players play, the the key strikes the place, and, and that makes a hole. That, it, he could do it visually. He could do it visually. And yeah, unfortunately, um, the introduction to your book was written by our uh, dear departed uh, friend, mm-hmm. H.R. Stonebeck, um, Stoney was a, a scholar in, in, in so many so many areas. Hemingway, uh, just uh, American literature, English literature, but he loved music. And when he came to our conference as a keynote, his condition was, "I'm bringing two musicians, and we wound up talking more about music he and I uh, off scenes than we did, you know, uh, Hemingway. And then we even had some connections with the fact of the um, the Sugar Bowl and Gaylord." He had some anecdotes that just, I'll never forget about that. But tell us uh, about your connection with, with Stoney and how he wound up writing the, well, um, the introduction. And unfortunately, I think I'm the one that informed you of his passing. Oh, yes, it was sad. In 19, or 2013, when the International Hemingway Society was in Bayview, in the spring, I got an email from somebody named Stoney. I didn't know who he was. And I trained valiantly to figure out him. And he was so complimentary of my book, I Believe You. And then that summer, I, I met him, and he gave the keynote address. And from then, I kept in contact with him. He came several times to the Terrace Inn, to the Hemingway Society, spoke. And then the last time he came, I was trying to get this together, and I needed something from a musician that understood the era history, America, and Stoney was an expert on the American authors. He was an expert on Hemingway. He'd written 43 books. I've been spending half my life writing two. <laughs> <laughs> but he was extraordinarily kind and very perceptive. And he said, sure, I'll do it. I about dropped over. And, um, and then he wrote this wonderful, wonderful introduction. And um, I was so thrilled to get it. He was hoping the book would be out last fall for the Hemingway thing, but of course that had to be canceled because of COVID. 
And also, we had a supply chain issue. I had, I took me 11 months to get this printed because of ink and paper and people. And so that was it was a real marathon. But Stoney died in, in December. So because he was impetus and, and inspired me and, and he was so supportive, I, I dedicated it to him. So you're selling it at Arlington Jewelers? Well, I was going to say, yeah. Um, uh, first of all, uh, do you want to sing a song? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. <laughs> yes, you were, you were kind enough to drop off a box of books um, with the, 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 the proceeds and the profits going to the Michigan Hemingway Society, for which we, we will always thank you. Um, but for other people that would like to find your book, where, where can they find this? this well, uh, they can find treasure? it on com at McLean and Aiken, at the Terrace Inn, at Arlington Jeweler, <laughs> and um, those are the places right now. I haven't put it on Amazon because they have a surcharge until things kind of straighten out there. And then I'm going to probably put it into um, on eBay, but I want to send it to the libraries. The Bayview book was um, purchased by 84 of the major libraries across the country with historic collections. Harvard, uh, three of the five libraries have it. And New York City, Aubrey Cornell, George Mason University, and San Diego, California, Chicago Library, and, and uh, Chicago University Library, George Washington uh, Library in St. Louis. So it, it uh, was picked up by these wonderful libraries and I would like to send this to to those libraries but I have to contact them each individually well we know McLean and Aiken is is one of the top oh yes local booksellers in the United States literally they were and the first ones I took it to I remember when you came over and it was on the big spiral display and you were you're were, you're were very excited and oh yeah and they do a great job there so I encourage people that are local here to stop by McLean and Aiken and check out Mary Jane's new book Hugo Gottsman, all these other uh, aspects of Bayview history. We're going we're gonna to get you for some more inf- interviews. Oh, I just had an interview. I just had a presentation in Bayview about Hugo Gottsman. He was a violinist, uh, the premier violinist in Vienna before World War II, and he had to escape from the Nazis. He was Jewish, and the president of Bayview, um, Bishop Raymond J. Wade, um, was able to secure uh, a visa for him in 1936, which was an extraordinarily difficult time because of the quotas in the United States. And Wade's great-great-grandchildren are in Bayview, and uh, they're very interesting. We think maybe he, uh, Wade uh, secured the release of maybe 100 different people from uh, before and after World War II. The ones before World War II were in danger, and the ones after World War II were in danger of being under the Russian domination. All of them, their lives were in danger. Mary, we have a, a dinner date scheduled. We have an annual lunch that we do every year. Yes. Uh, we had a great dinner last year at your house. I owe you one in my oh, vintage 1880 hotel. You do. <laughs> and Peter's taking us sailing. But My nephew wants to take you out sailing in his boat. But promise us you'll come back and share some more of this great history yeah. uh, that you've collected over the years. Yeah, I'd uh, like to share Hugo because 
the people of northern Michigan, he was sick twice with cancer, and they took care of him. And he lived for how long? He lived until he was 74. He was in northern Michigan from 42 till 1970. And how many years did he have cancer? Uh, he had cancer in 52, and people paid for him, took care of him. And one of the people from Metoskey flew him by a private plane to mail, and they arrested the cancer. And then he um, was here another 18 years, and he got cancer again. Dr. Blum, the angel of, of northern Michigan, took care of him free, and the people of Petoskey uh, paid the hospital bills. Says something. Six months hospital bills. Well, it says something about our community, doesn't it? It does. And the English always means a lot to me. His grandniece always expresses appreciation for what was done to take care of her uncle, to get him out of Europe and to get him here and take care of him because he lost everything. Well, Mary, thank you for joining us and not just sharing one smile, but several smiles. Thank you for interviewing and inviting me to come and do this. Yeah, my friend Mary Jane Dorr. This is Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I've been your host, Christopher Struble, and please join us next time for some more fascinating history about Northern Michigan.